0: To God's word, Acts chapter 3. I'm going to begin reading at verse 12. Acts chapter 3, verse 12. When Peter saw this, he said to them, Men of Israel, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has given this complete healing to him, as you all can see. Now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders, but this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Christ would suffer. Repent, then, and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that he may send the Christ who has been appointed for you, even Jesus, You must remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. For Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You must listen to everything he tells you. And anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from among his people. Indeed, all the prophets from Samuel on, as many as have spoken, have foretold these days. And you are heirs of the prophets and of the covenant god made with your fathers he said to abraham through your offspring all peoples on earth will be blessed when god raised up his servant he sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways let me pray as we've heard god's word that he would apply it to our hearts father in heaven we we rejoice in this powerful announcement of good news This reminder that that despite our sin, the death of Jesus was to forgive us. To wash away our sins, to to blot them out, to remove them from the the record books. That Jesus took our sin upon himself and that through his death we are forgiven. And Lord, we rejoice in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Showing that he is the one who reigns now with power. The one who will return to, to make new everything. All that has gone wrong will be turned right. And so, Lord, as we hear your word today, apply it to our hearts. Lord, as we, as we listen, comfort us with the hope of your presence, the power of your spirit here in the midst of your people. Lord, as we doubt your truth, let your word shine brightly before us. The promises that you have made, the promises you have kept, and the promises that are sure to come to pass. Lord, we are people in desperate need of your comfort your guidance, your transformation. And so, Father in heaven, we come praying in the name of Jesus. Amen. My current research project has me focusing on the power of illustrations from a biblical perspective and from a, from a human, from a creational perspective, to transform people's lives. And so I have to admit, I'm a little bit jealous of Peter here. Because do you, you, here's, here's what happens the, the verse right before what I, what I read to you, verse 11 of our chapter, is, is Peter has, has healed a man. And all the people in verse 11 are so astonished, they come running to him. They come running to hear the word of God preached. Now, I didn't watch all of you enter the room this morning. But I don't suspect that if you're over the age of 8 or 10, that you came running into the room. Now, some of that's the architecture. You'd probably hit a doorway on your way through. But, but you see what happens here is, is Peter offers the people a living illustration, a powerful picture of what God can do. And so the people are so astonished that they come running to find an explanation. Because what's happened, we, we see it in verses 1 through 10, Peter and John are going up to the temple. It's that time of prayer. It's three in the afternoon. And so they're going up, and and there, uh, we're we're told, near the the gate called Beautiful. It looks out to the east over the, the Kidron Valley there. There's the Mount of Olives before you, and there's a man begging, a man who has been crippled since he was born, begging for money. And Peter looks at him. He says to him, look at us. He grabs the man's attention from the crowd. And so this man turns with expectation to the apostle. Peter says, silver or gold, I do not have. I don't have what you're asking for. But what I have, I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. And this man who had never walked is helped to his feet. By Peter. Instantly, his legs, his ankles are strengthened. This man goes running, leaping, praising God. Now, everyone imitates the man who has been healed, and they come running. They come running to hear the word, to hear the description, to hear the explanation. How can this happen? What is going on here? See, Peter, he's captured their attention with this miracle. He's showing them a glimpse of the kingdom with this miracle. He's explaining the power of the resurrection with this miracle. And so when the people come running there to to Solomon's colonnade, there under the the covered archways of the entryway into into the temple, not really built by Solomon, that temple had been destroyed, but when they rebuilt it, if you give it an old-fashioned name, it makes it seem more important. And so there, under Solomon's colonnade, the people come running. But look at what Peter does. He starts with a question. Look back at verse 12. Men of Israel, why does this surprise you? Why are you surprised that the God of the universe has the power to heal a man? Men of Israel, why are you surprised that the promises of God are being fulfilled today? Men of, men of Israel, people of God, why don't you already understand? See, seeing the miracle and hearing the Old Testament should have been enough to explain what was taking place. The God who is present with his people There at the temple, the God who showed himself in these temple precincts just weeks before, the God who died on the cross but has now been raised, he has the power to heal. And so that's what what Peter says. He says, there's nothing that I could have done. There's, There's nothing here in me or in John. There's nothing in us. We're fishermen from Galilee. We don't have the power or the piety to have transformed this man's life. But look at verse 13. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. How did this take place? Because Jesus has been glorified. Now, that's a a shocking statement, not surprising to us, because we put glory with Jesus' name all the time. But... But notice the way this phrase is is written. It's not that that we're told that God is glorified. Now, that would be a common refrain throughout the Bible. We're told here that God is glorifying a human, a man. It doesn't normally work that way. The, The glory train goes the other way. We glorify God because he's the one with all the power. And yet, we're told that God glorified Jesus because Jesus is truly the Son of God. He is God himself. He is God in the flesh. And and how has he been glorified? He's been glorified through his resurrection from the dead. Verse 15, you killed him, but God raised him. You You attempted to destroy Jesus, but God would not let this beautiful plan of mercy be destroyed. See, here is the centrality, the centrality of the the resurrection in the life of the church, and it's shown to us in the life of this man. This man is running, leaping, healed because Jesus has been raised. You and I are meant to respond the same way this man does. Verse 16, it is by faith in the name of Jesus. We respond by putting our trust, by putting our hope, by putting our confidence in Jesus. That's what the healing means. Jesus is glorified. And, and, and what, what, what Peter does then is, is he, just, he shows them, you shouldn't have been surprised by this because of what God has done for you in the past. You shouldn't be surprised that God is at work in the present, and you should have confidence then that God is at work in the future. I mean, no, notice how, how frequently the, the, the apostle describes that the, you should have understood this because the prophets said it. Look at verse 18. He says, this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets. All the prophets told you this was going to happen. What? The Christ would suffer. His Christ. His Messiah. His God's anointed one. Or it's, it's repeated then in, in verse 21. A, a, that, that Jesus is the one who will come back to restore everything as he promised long ago. Wait, when did Jesus say that? In in the Old Testament, through his prophets, for Moses said, "The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet." All of the prophets have have told us this message, but 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 Peter he he wants to make sure you you really get this point. I mean, now he may have spoken longer than this. Luke has given us perhaps a condensed summary of his sermon, but but three times in this sermon. He reminds them, this is what the prophets told you, because he tells us again in verse 24, indeed, all the prophets from way back in in Samuel's time, the time of of King David, all of the prophets since then have spoken about this day, this moment, the day in which you and I live, the day in which Jesus is glorified. See, even from his very first words, Peter is reminding the people of God's covenant covenant promises. How does he address them? Men of Israel, people of God, you are the chosen people, the Old Testament people of God gathered here in the worship of God at his temple. He announces that, that what has who, has, who has made this man walk? It's not, it's not us. Verse 13, it's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers. God is a promise-keeping God. And yet, what is the message? How has Jesus been glorified? It's through through what one commentator describes as these surprising reversals. Look, Look back at verse 13. The servant, Jesus, is glorified. Now, again, that doesn't shock or surprise us because, of course, Jesus is glorified. But a servant, a servant Serves. A servant works. A servant helps. A servant doesn't receive glory. But this servant, God's servant, God's chosen and anointed Christ, he is exalted. He's the the deliverer of his people, but yet he has been delivered, handed over to be killed. The holy and righteous one is traded for an unholy and unrighteous murderer, Barabbas. Pilate wanted to to release Jesus, and yet the people, stirred up by the, the leaders, said, no, 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 give us Barabbas, the convicted and condemned insurrectionist murderer or the innocent, holy, and righteous one. And the people choose the unholy, the unrighteous. The author of life, we're told, in verse 15, the author of life, the source of life, the giver of life, has been killed. He is killed on the cross. And and in even these descriptions are the rich promises of God to call Jesus the Holy One, to call him the Righteous One, echoes the language of the prophets. It's the, it's the language of I, Isaiah. In that very famous chapter, chapter 53, the description of the suffering servant, the one whom God would send, the one the servant who will be glorified. In Isaiah 53, we're told that he, he is the, 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 the source of life. He is, Is the one who will suffer in our place he is the righteous one he is the holy one see jesus is the promised messiah the the past promises of god have been fulfilled here such that the present blessing of god is poured out on his people and what's 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 the evidence this man who you all have seen day by day begging in the courts is running around praising God. That's the evidence that God is at work right now. That the past promises of God have broken into the, the present reality of the church. This man has been healed. Now, now we might be suspicious that, that there's some kind of charade going on that the apostles have, have, you know, maybe perhaps paid this man, that there's—because there's, that it, that it, this can't happen. You and I know that. People who have been crippled for life don't suddenly, at the words of a, of a, of, of, of a fisherman, stand up and walk. It can't happen. You and I might, might think that that doesn't count as evidence. Even if I'd been there, I would have been suspicious. I don't think it counts as evidence, but I wasn't there. And so probably it didn't even happen. Probably it was just made up by the apostles after the fact because they realized, boy, this whole Jesus thing with him dying kind of puts a crimp in our whole plans of taking over the world. And so let's come up with a new plan. Let's come up with a way to, to convince people. And so let's make up stories of miracles. And so you say that that evidence, the man healed, it just doesn't count. It doesn't count for me. It's not evidence for me then what would count? No, I mean really. If you're skeptical about Christianity, I want you to be honest with yourself right now. What would count as evidence that it was true? Because if, if this doesn't count, then what would? Would you have to see it? Would you have to be there and see it? That would change your mind, would it? No, see, part of the problem is when you and I are skeptical, our skepticism has no end point. We're skeptical with whatever evidence is laid before us. Oh, well, yeah, but we know that couldn't have happened either. Oh, well, that miracle? No. We, I, I, I thought I told you miracles as a category is, is out. Miracles don't count. See, our skepticism, we just keep pushing our skepticism into the, the next bit of evidence that is presented to us. But where does it end? Because if you're, if you're then honest, your skepticism, if you're going to keep pushing it everywhere, you should push it back on yourself. Back on your ability to determine the evidence. If you're really skeptical, you should, you should start with the, the person who has most disappointed you in your life. The person who's most forgetful, the person who, is, who has done the most things wrong, the person who you have the most reason to doubt is you. And so if you're going to be honest with your skepticism, you should be skeptical about your own ability to to verify the facts. See what you actually would need, and what we need, when we're being honest, is we need someone to explain it to us. So you and I are in the same position that the people were when they came running. What's going on? I can see the guy walking. Like, I, I can see it. I can verify it, I can run some tests, I can line them up on a line and say, let's, hey, let's run to the back of the room, let's see who gets there fast. But I still don't know what's happening. So you and I might think, if, if I were there, if I had seen it, then I would believe it. But the people who saw it had no idea what was taking place. You and I always need someone to explain it to us, because we doubt what our eyes see. We, we convince ourselves, no, that, that couldn't have been the case. So we need an explanation. And so you and I are actually in a better spot than the people who were eyewitnesses because you and I have, have the verified explanation given to us by God's spokesman, the miracle worker himself, the one who says, but yeah, but it wasn't me. It's not us. It's not, it's not Peter and John who can do these kinds of things. It's the risen Lord Jesus. So you and I would actually need his explanation. And so, so I want you to push your skepticism all the way to be skeptical about yourself, so that you might finally be willing to listen to somebody else tell you the truth. Because the present blessing for this man is a blessing that is, that is extended to us. Peter tells the, the, the listeners that what God is doing is his, he is his wiping away sins. Look at verse 9. He tells them that they need to repent. They need to turn to God. Why? Verse 19, I mean, verse 19. So that your sins may be wiped out. The times of refreshing may come from the Lord. It's it's the image of, of taking ink and, and blotting it off the page, and in the ancient world, the ink didn't didn't have the acids that our modern inks do, so they didn't didn't sink right into the to the material, and so you you could you could wipe it away. There would be be no trace of it left. It's gone completely. The page is blank. Your sins are removed. That's what is what's happening here. That's what the man standing here tells us. God is a God who forgives sins. Because Jesus died, because Jesus has been glorified. He has been raised. And even here in this miracle of the man who stands with the, with the apostles are the future promises of God's kingdom. Because not every beggar, not every man who was crippled was healed in Jerusalem. Not everything was transformed on that day, but there are future promises still to come. There is that day coming. This passage contains a future hope of the restoration of everything. Look, look at the, the language that Peter uses. When he tells them in verse 19 to repent so that your sins may be wiped out right now and that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. He's looking forward to, to the times which are coming. He says the, the, the prophets, they spoke about this moment, but they also spoke about the, the, the future which is coming. Verse 20, when Jesus Christ returns, so that, that, that God may send the Christ who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. Verse 21, he must remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything. This man can walk one day all Will walk. This man has been healed. One day healing will come to all. And see, this is a message you and I need to hear. Today, as we face the the sorrow and the sadness and the surgeries, as we face the the diagnosis and the debilitating illnesses, as you and I face our inevitable coming deaths, you and I need the promise of a man standing before the, the people of Israel, a man who can walk, because this is the promise that because Jesus has been glorified, everything will be restored. Everything. Your sins wiped away, your body healed, your relationships restored, your access to God complete. This is the promise that you and I are desperate to hear. See, letting this man walk transforms his life for years. The glory of Jesus transforms him forever. See, it's equivalent to a parlor trick if all he does is walk. Because he'll still face death. He'll still face sickness. So you and I need this future promise, the promise that the prophets have spoken about, that day when Jesus will return and God will restore what? Everything. This is the promise that we're given here in Acts chapter 3. And so what's the response? Peter has said it repeatedly. It's the same response he, he asked for from the people in his sermon in Acts chapter 2. What does he tell them? He tells them that they need to repent. They need to turn from their wicked ways. That's what repentance is. It's a, it's a decision, a moral a, 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 a volitional decision to say, I was going this way, and I will turn. It, it, I mean, it's, it's the word in, in the Old Testament that actually can just mean that, to physically turn. But when applied to our spiritual lives, it says, I was doing my own thing. I will turn from it. I will reject the sin that I've committed, and I will turn back to the Lord. Turn from your wicked ways. Repent. Repent. Turn to God. Put your trust in the glorified servant, in the holy and righteous Son of God. Find your hope like the the man who has been healed in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. See, sometimes the the preaching of the apostles is called anti-Semitic. Because what does what Peter do here? He points his fingers at the Jewish people and he says, you killed him. You disowned him. But, do you, but you see, it's, it's not an anti-Semitic message. I mean, what he's doing is he's saying the promise that God gave to the Jews is a promise for all the nations, and God was at work here. This was God's plan. And remember who's pointing the finger in this instance. And so I'm not saying that there haven't been times in church history where the church has wrongly taken a position that that it was sinful toward people of other religions and ethnicities. But, But here, no, this is the message of the Jewish prophets for the Jewish people spoken by a Jewish apostle. And remember when Peter tells them, when he says in verse 14, you disowned the holy and righteous one. You disowned him. That word, disowning him, is the word that the Gospels use repeatedly to describe Peter. Peter, as he points his fingers at the crowd, stands before them as one who disowned Jesus. See, they they collectively disowned him, but who in the Gospels is told? Each of the Gospels uses this word. All of them use it. To whom is it individually applied? To Peter. In Luke the, the gospel writer who, who also wrote the book of Acts. In Luke chapter 22, Jesus has been arrested. And, and we're told in Luke, Luke 22, verse 54, then, then seizing him, the, the, the crowd who had come to arrest him, took Jesus away to the house of the priest. And Peter followed at a distance. But when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard, they sat down together. Peter sat down with them. A servant girl. A servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said, This man, Peter, he he was with Jesus. But Peter denied it. Peter disowned him. It's the same word. Woman, I don't know Jesus. Jesus. A little later, someone else saw him and said, You are one of them. I am not, Peter replied. About an hour later, another asserted, Certainly this fellow is with him. He's a Galilean. Peter replied, Man, I don't know what you're talking about. Peter disowned Jesus. And yet now, mere weeks later, he stands before the crowds in public and claims the name of Jesus. Chapter 4, as, as as Peter and John are dragged before the religious leaders. See, see, Peter is in the house of the high priest, but he's not before the tribunal. He's out with the, the crowd, the spectators. He he disowns Jesus to a servant girl. Now, in, in Acts chapter 4, he's brought in. Brought into the tribunal, to the, the rulers, the elders, the teachers of the law. There is the high priest. And Peter says to them, It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. This is Acts chapter 4, verse 10. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected. He's become the capstone. Salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. When told that he must keep his mouth shut or risk his own life, this is what Peter and John reply in Acts chapter 4. Judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. For we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. the one who denied Jesus has become God's mouthpiece for the gospel message. What could have happened in between? Easter. It's the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. It doesn't merely make men walk. It makes men speak. Jesus Christ has been glorified Jesus the son of God the holy and righteous one who died has been raised from the dead we disowned him Peter says and so when he points his fingers at the Jews he points his fingers at us because we we disowned Jesus in our rebellion and, sin, and so we are called to repent see God's covenant promises are clear why are you surprised why are you surprised that God has done this why are you surprised that the world is being turned upside down The man who is crippled has been healed. The times of refreshing, the times the prophets spoke of, the restoration of all things, it's coming. The apostles are witnesses to this truth. God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Why are you surprised by this? Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we rejoice in the hope of your gospel. Lord, we thank you for the bold proclamation of truth from the lips of one who had disowned our Savior. For, Lord, this is a a promise to us that if we repent, if we turn from sin, then you are the God who will blot out our transgressions. You will wash away our sins. We will be completely forgiven. And so, Lord, give us the, the trust to believe your word. Give us the the hope of your future blessings. And Lord, give us the, the promise of your presence with us now. Lord, that we, we would be those who speak with boldness the truth of the gospel. Father, we come rejoicing, praying in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.